Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Once upon a time, far, far away, an anonymous writer wrote some of the following lines. Your excellences must know that my ill-born brother, whose name will shortly be revealed to you, is a traitor to our motherland. He reveals the most important secrets of the negotiations are counsels to Zwane Pecci, who lives in Cale Sporca, in the neighborhood of San Luca, and then Pecci reveals them to his compatriot, who is the servant of the Holy Roman Emperor's ambassador. This was not a secret denunciation to a block captain in a 20th century dictatorship, but one written in Renaissance Venice to the heads of the Council of Ten, the masters of Venetian intelligence. And when you realize that the Republic's foreign intelligence and cryptographic services was no less developed than its internal police, it becomes clear that, as my guest Joanna Yoradino writes, Venice has created one of the world's centrally organized state intelligence services. Indeed, it's perhaps its first centrally organized state intelligence service. Moreover, it shows how, quote, organizational entities and managerial practices existed long before contemporary terminology was coined to describe them. Interest in organizational entities and managerial practices is to be expected from Dr. Yordano, reader in Human Resources Management at Oxford Brooks Business School in Oxford, England. She has investigated the pedagogic role of coaching and mentoring and the emergence of pre-modern organizations in the proto-modern organizations in the pre-industrial world. Related to this last is her research in early modern intelligence, and from this research has come the book Venice's Secret Service, Organizing Intelligence in the Renaissance, which we are discussing today. Joanna, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much, Al. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, this is a, a fascinating book, uh, despite its intimidating title and um, <laughs> subject matter, which will seem um, out of the way to people. Um, but you've convinced me that uh, it's really, really important. And it's also a really uh, it, it's just really a fascinating, it, it's like, it's going to a far off country, uh, about a place we know nothing and then learning all these mm. things about it. So, uh, the Venetian Republic is not at the, uh, forefront of most people's minds. So if you could give a, a very quick, um, summary of what the Venetian Republic was, um, say at the middle of your chosen dates, what your chosen span of investigation is and what mm -hmm. the Venetian Republic was like at the beginning and how it changed during that period. Yes, of course. Uh, first of all, can I say I, I, I'm glad I convinced you. <laughs> and <laughs> the right. thing with the, with intelligence studies is uh, most of them are primarily focusing on on you know intelligence operations and services after the First World War. Uh, yes. And much as there has been research before that, is not as much established. So one of the goals was to look at what happened in in the early modern era and. Um, I had an inclination, and I have to say that this was not just me. This was with, in discussion with with scholars of what we call contemporary or modern intelligence, that something was happening in Venice, uh, and that's how it all started. So, um, so the Venetian Republic uh, is sort of the formal name of the Venetian state in the 16th century. The book deals with primarily the period between 1500 and 1630, which is the period when the Republic of Venice 
rises and falls. So Venice, um, you know, by, by mid 15th century is a maritime empire. It controls the most um, significant commercial routes between the East and the West. And because of that uh, economic prominence, it plays a vital role on the political international scene in, in early modern Europe. By sort of mid 1550s, it starts gradually declining, primarily because of a, of a sequence of, of political conflicts and wars, which means it loses some of its territorial ex expansion. And we can discuss that, what, what is Venice in the 16th century? Um, and eventually by the late 16th century, early 17th century, it's, it's in steady decline. Um, but I would just like to clarify for the listeners what is the Republic of Venice in the 16th century, because most people, when they hear Venice, they usually think of the, you know, the city or the island sure. of Venice. Um, so the Venetian Republic at that particular point in time, around the 1500s, um, comprises a sort of a constellation of um, nearby cities in the area of the Veneto, which is the geographical area around Venice, but also cities in northern Italy. Uh, and this is what the Venetians of the time called Stato da Terra, that is the Venetian mainland colonies. Um, and it also comprises uh, several parts of um, what is now the Balkan Peninsula, so areas like Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, Albania, that they were not called that at the time, uh, and a significant portion of uh, the most vital Greek islands and uh, an important part of what is today contemporary Greece, together with um, Cyprus, which was one of Venice's most prized possessions in the Mediterranean. So you're looking at, um, a, a, you know, a, a city that possesses uh, several colonies in some of the most vital commercial routes of the early modern period. And this is why a lot of scholars today have started to somehow incorporate Venice into um, larger comparative debates of the nature of early modern empires. So they, they have started to view Venice more as an empire because of its empire-like um, mm -hmm. makeup that basically um, controlled these areas and not only politically but also financially also culturally um, and in a military manner as well yes travelers to the greek islands will always be uh curious of why who don't know what they're looking at always curious why there's why is there a venetian castle here yes, that dominates yes, exactly. everything? Or, or a genoese castle but by 1390 mm, yes. uh Venice has conquered its, uh, or at least subdued its great rival in the Mediterranean, uh, the Republic of yes. Genoa. And mm -hmm. uh, then with the fall of Byzantine Empire, 1453, Venice mm -hmm. now has almost really sole access to the goods of the Ottoman Empire. And that's part of its yes. foreign policy, right? To maintain that link somehow mm -hmm. to the Ottomans, even when the Ottomans might not want to. Is that? Uh, sorry, I, I lost you there, Al. So the um, part of uh, the Venetian foreign policy mm -hmm. is to somehow maintain that commercial link to the Ottoman Absol Empire. Absolutely. Uh, and this is this is crucial. I mean, the Ottoman Empire is, is sort of the perennial enemy uh, mm -hmm. of, of Venice in that particular point in time. And there is a love-hate relationship between the two. I mean, uh, between the 1460s and the 15th, uh, 1570s, the Venetians and the Ottomans uh, are engaged in four very onerous um, Ottoman-Venetian wars, as, as, as we call them. Um, and in between, they try to maintain 
maintain this stance of neutrality much as they're constant rivals because both of them, what they're trying to do is control the commerce, especially of luxury products coming from the East, usually spices and silk. Um, so there is a very, very interesting love-hate relationship there. And one of the, the things I found while researching the book is, is that even, for example, during times that the Venetians are engaging in war with the Ottomans, they mm -hmm. still try to keep them as a peace as possible by smuggling, you know, intelligence that, you know, could favor their interests <laughs> to them. So it's, it's really, really interesting what's happening uh, between the two, um, the two states. So, so this is this curious, curious um, empire of this city, a city empire um, with its uh, tentacles reaching out throughout the Mediterranean and throughout the Atlantic littoral. Um, but what is uh, the population of Venice at the time? Would you say? Just give me a ballpark. Oh, that's I uh, oh, a, a sixty end, end of the sixteenth century. Why do you think that just before, off the top of my head, just mm -hmm. be before a devastating plague in mm -hmm. uh, in, in mid fifteen um, seventies? Why do I think it's one hundred seventy five thousand? It's quite a lot. It is quite yeah. so. It's, it's, it's just under two hundred thousand. It's one of the most populous states in early modern Europe. But admittedly, off the top of my head, I don't have the figure. Yeah, but just to give people an idea of uh, how big of, of of a city we're talking about. Um, so we've called it a republic. It is a republic. Mm -hmm. It is not a democratic republic. Republics no. don't have to be dem democratic. No. So what what kind of republic is it? It's extraordinary com okay. extraordinarily complex. Um, so we probably can just give a, a brief sketch of it. Yes, that's that's exactly the way to to describe it. It's the political system of early modern Venice is extraordinarily complex, even of schol even for scholars of yeah. early modern Venetian politics. And I have to admit, I'm not necessarily one of them. Um, so it's called a republic. Uh, I mean, for the basic, the very basic reason, first of all, that there was no monarchy. So there's no crowned head taking, making political decisions. What it was, it was an oligarchy. So the male members, and male is really important here, um, of the nobility made part of a variety of governmental committees who had distinct responsibilities and took all executive decisions and I think that republical element there is again that that um, political makeup of Venice in terms of specific governmental committees there is a, the doge who is more or less a ceremonial figurehead so the doge doesn't take decisions on his own the political system relies on a, on a, on a voting process so for every decision there's a voting process there needs to be a majority for a decision to be made and potentially to be passed into law um, is that in the, that's in the, the Venetian Senate or that is it's a combination so yes. so there are several committees I'm not going to mention all of them primarily no, because no, I don't know no, no. all of them but the, yeah, the most so important ones exactly the most important ones are are the following four I would say first of all is the Great Council which is or as it was called then the Major Consiglio which is the assembly of the entire body of male Venetian patricians think in the 16th century, we're talking at a minimum of 2,000 men. Um, mm -hmm. There's the Senate, as you mentioned, which is the Venetian, the primary Venetian legis legislative organ. So they, they you know, there is the Venetian debating committee. They take most of the important legal decisions, especially up until mid 16th century. Then there's the Collegio, which is the Senate steering committee. And most importantly, for my, my 
you know, research interest is the Council of Ten, which is actually a council of 17 members, not 10, uh, which is the committee. Yeah, no, it's a bit confusing. Uh, it's a committee responsible for the security of the entire Venetian state and primarily the heads of the Venetian intelligence organization. So... Um... This is government run by committee, which to anyone in oh. business or academia sounds like a recipe for disaster. Uh, yet, yeah. the, <laughs> certainly your focus, the Council 10, uh -huh. works really well. Um, so you, you're the management person. Uh, uh, uh -huh. Maybe we should put this into the rest of the podcast. But briefly, how do you think, why do you think it works so well? That's a good question. I, I think there's a combination of factors. They were... Um, <sighs> Most of the literature on the Council of Ten, and I have to say, most of it stopped around the 1980s. Um, and also contemporaneous, you know, um, scholars of the Council of Ten, so, you know, historians and, and, and scholars, uh, you know, um, writing in the 16th century, saw them as a ruthless committee. So whatever right. they decided had to, you know, had to happen. But I think if you, if you really examine the Council of Ten, you cannot understand their effectiveness without understanding the, the, the meticulous for the period, you know, and for the lack of technology of the in the period, meticulous managerial practices they developed. So there are a committee of 17 individuals, 10 ordinary members, six ducal councillors, and the doge as a sort of ceremonial figurehead, but it's only the 10 ordinary members that are, are sort of debating decisions. Hmm. And they are the top of the hierarchy, and I'm talking here about specifically about the Venetian Foreign Policy and Intelligence Organization. And what they do is uh, they debate certain issues, um, they decree on their decisions, so their decisions have got some kind of legal standing, and and it's that legal standing that they then use to ask their subordinates, that is their governors in all the different Venetian dominated areas, or their mm -hmm. ambassadors who act as informers, you know, formal informers in foreign courts um, to, to act. So on the one hand, they do have, you know, legal authority to order people to do whatever they want them to do. But on the other hand, they also expect that all these individuals that they sort of manage, if we can use this word, mm -hmm. report back or give up account, this is where the process of accounting comes in, um, on, you know, the, the action, on how they have actioned the tense decisions. So there mm -hmm. is a very centrally organized process of, you know, decision making and decision implementation based on, first of all, a hierarchical structure, and secondly, on specific decrees and regulations, um, which is very much akin to, you know, what organizations are today. You know, right. if we look at, you know, um, Mark, uh, Max Weber's, you know, theory of bureaucratic management as well. And I think this is where they were so effective. And I have to say from my research, what I found is they were not as ruthless you know, and as cunning as literature has presented them, they were actually very caring and very attentive of the individuals and the families of the individuals that served them. Huh. Um, and the 10, so the, the 10's remit is foreign policy, uh, war, and intelligence? Or do they In have the 16th further, century, yeah, yes. 
Yes, okay. in the, in the, when they started in the 14th century, eventually by the you know 15th century, they, they basically have assumed power of, of any aspect of political life in Venice. But when we move mm. to the 16th century, they primarily are responsible for foreign policy, which of course includes any armed conflict uh, and intelligence mm-hmm. organization and espionage. So the intelligence is at the heart of what the Ten is interested in, and so mm-hmm. it, it's really at the heart of the of the councils of of the Republic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Um, you have five questions that you set out to answer, but let's instead um, you talk about the in, in one of them is the the problem of proto modern organizations. So what is yes. the problem of proto modern organizations? Okay, this is a really important question, and I'm I'm very very happy you actually give me the opportunity to to answer it. Um, <laughs> from from an academic perspective, that is, from uh, the perspective of historian working in the business school or a historian trying to explore, you know, managerial practices and organizational entities in the early modern period, um, the main problem for me is the conventional conflation of organization with a modern corporation. So when we say organization, you know, in lay language or, you know, in academia, we usually imply an entity that employs a certain number of individuals who work towards a specific goal, that is providing a product or a service, usually but not always with a purpose of profit maximization, okay? Uh, And this stems from a conventional wisdom that sees organizations as the outcome of of rationality, industrialization, and technological advancements that emanated from the Industrial Revolution. So so we'll look at organizations as a natural byproduct of the Industrial Revolution. Um, I think the problem with that is that as, as, as business historians or as organization studies scholars, we have neglected the forms of organization that existed in the pre-industrial era, and such as, I don't know, monarch, monarchies or churches or feudal estates or governments or armies, you know, they were all forms of organization, both as a bounded entity, but also organization as a process that they did not necessarily operate within the market. So that they were not operating for profit maximization, but did constitute a form of organization um, with you know, organizational hierarchies based on, on a set of rule of regulations, even on managerial discourses that, that exist. I mean, in Venice, we do have a managerial discourse already from the 16th century, especially in the Arsenale, the Venetian shipbuilding industry. So for me, this is the issue that there are organizational entities in the pre-industrial era, but because there was not necessarily, you know, the, the terminology that we use to describe organizations, their traits and their ingredients, like leadership, like management, like, I don't know, performance management and so on and so forth, because it did not, have, this terminology had not been coined then, we do not perceive these processes or entities as organizations and actually they did exist and we can learn a lot from them if we have an open mind so for me that is the main problem with what you know i i had to name proto modern organization because they're not necessarily organizations in the way we see organizations today right but yet as as you demonstrate a great uh, great detail um they can be extraordinarily sophisticated Absolutely. Yes. And and this is something really important that they can be extraordinarily sophisticated as long as we don't necessarily judge them with contemporary criteria, because, of course, there was no technology. You know, the contemporary organizations will use email to communicate. At that point in time, you needed a letter that, you know, a letter for a letter to, to reach 
um, from sort of from Rome to, to reach Japan, it would take two and a half years and two right. and a half years for a response to come back. Imagine if you need to write to somebody to basically fire them. <laughs> it takes about <laughs> five years for the process. Yeah. So, but at, at the same time, it, it I was uh, in, in many ways, uh, as I was uh, talking about this with my father, he pointed out, uh, uh, he pointed out that now we talk about um, what's the current, uh, we're talking about 5G. And in, in many ways, this is 1G or 0.5G. Uh, the Venice, uh, one of the reasons for its uh, success as an intelligence service is its role as an information center. And that's because of the yes. way things have shaken out. Yes. From 1450 to 1500. Um, uh -huh. Can you, you uh, one of it has to do with its role in commerce and its uh -huh. refusal to make a distinction between politics and commerce. Uh, what do you uh -huh. mean by the, you, when you say that Venice had no distinction between politics and commerce? And what were its objectives in, pol in political economics? Okay, what I mean here is that you know, as 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 a previously previously mentioned, Venice is is primarily a, a political empire. So its political prominence, sorry, is is a maritime empire. So its prominence on the international scene in early modern Europe uh, is primarily because it is a commercial center. Um, the moment, so so basically, any political decision in Venice can have economic implications, and any economic turbulence could disturb its uh, its its place on the international scene so so and, and that's what i'm saying you know politics and commerce are of equal standing because the mm -hmm. moment you know that its economic stability is threatened its political prominence on the international scene is threatened as well right and it's and its economic stability is extraordinarily fragile with not just the fall of constantinople mm -hmm. and with the with a hegemon uh, controlling the Eastern Mediterranean, but also with uh, the Portuguese being successful in making it to India uh, ab and uh, ab cutting out the middleman. Uh, absolutely, yes, and and there's several, you know, several issues issues there. Of course, Von Venice, you know, tries and eventually lose, you know, does not loses that capacity. Um, to, to control uh, the, um, the the spice trade and the silk trade, so of course you know there are issues there. But other issues are eventually it starts losing a lot of its colonies that are in pivotal positions for its um, commercial uh, prominence, and of course technologically it starts declining as well. So the traditional Venetian galley that worked very well in the 15th century eventually is not sufficient to compete um, on the international scene when uh, rising powers like England or the the Dutch Republic have a lot more robust and a lot lighter ships that they can mm -hmm. use to transport products. Right, and so uh, that's that's an important point since Venice has been not just a leader in commerce but also manufacturing. I mean, we know about Venetian yes. glass, but that's actually very sophisticated uh, for everyone mm -hmm. else in the in the Middle Ages. Uh, I think wire was first pulled in uh, Venice in the Middle Ages. Uh, so there's lots of other manufacturing processes, secrets, secreti, which they, yes. Venice has and no one else has had mm -hmm. up until about this time. Um, so this commerce makes Venice an information center, correct? I mean, everything is coming to it, including correspondence, uh, letters. So there's secrets, a combination gossip. of things. I would say commerce is definitely one of them. I, I, I mean, if we're looking especially at the 16th century, uh, which is an era of significant events such as 
importantly, the, the invention of the printing press. And Venice in the 16th century is a seminal, seminal printing center. Um, of course, we've got the rise of, uh, as, as a result of the printing press, the, the rise of news pamphlets and eventually newspapers. So that's one of the reasons why Venice is an information center in that period. It's a center of printing. Um, mm -hmm. Importantly, as you said, because of its geographical position, midway between the Ottoman and the Spanish empires, Venice is, is a, an epicenter of commercial, but also diplomatic encounters. So you've got merchants, you've got sailors, you've got diplomats who are traveling across Europe. They, prob they, they stop in Venice, you know, bought their ships and they start sharing news. And because um, the, the, the Venetians are so used to this information explo uh, explosion, they are they are really obsessed, you know, with, with, with news. Mm -hmm. um, and and the other important thing that, that renders Venice an information center, which has not been emphasized enough in the literature, I would say, is that the, the Venetian population is uncharacteristically literate at the time. Yes, um, yes. I, I think Paul Grendler estimated that at the end of the 16th century, about 30% of Venetian boys, uh, or boys living in Venice, they're not all necessarily Venetian, um, were literate. So that's quite high. Um, so, you know, all these factors, sorry? It's freaky by the standards of other people. It, it, absolutely, yeah. it is. So, so all these factors mean that information, and by information here, I mean you know news. I mean gossip, chatter, fabrication, secrets. Is you know a combination yeah, gonna, of things. We're going to yeah. talk about that. It's also I, sure. I, it, they have a delight in reading. They're very curious too, as I recall. Uh, Calvin's Institute sold more copies in Venice than probably in the rest of Europe, which is makes you scratch your head a bit. But that's partly because <laughs> it's a literate population. They've got a printing press, and they just want to read everything um yes. even this new lutheran you know heresy anecdotally i wonder first of all absolutely but anecdotally i i wonder if you know it's also the geographical um yes. you know the, not only the geographical position in venice but the way the city is laid out i mean i it, it's it, it's not different today compared to what it was you know five, five centuries ago I, I lived in venice for up and down through sort of three years while I was conducting my doctoral research, everyone knows everyone. You know, yeah. go gossip is, is, is just so normal because you know everyone um, and yes. information travels so easily. Um, so that, that is something to consider as well is, 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 is you know, the, 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 the architectural layout of Venice also plays a very, very important role in this. Yeah, I want to get to that. That's a very, that's a very interesting idea. Um, but mm -hmm. let's uh, move the focus back to other intelligence services. Now, um, yeah. interested uh, people who are interested in this sort of thing uh, will know about Francis Walsingham. Yes. Uh, but that Walsingham is not Venice. So if, could you briefly, quickly contrast the Venetian intelligence services, uh, which are tripartite, uh, just the way that we're used to today, internal, external, and cryptographic, um, uh -huh. with the with the other with with its competitors. Yes. Um, so one of the one of the main claims in the book is that uh, Venice had created one of the earliest centrally organized secret services. And, I, and there's mm -hmm. a reason why I don't say the earliest, because what we need to be very careful of here is the Venetians, um, as part of their intelligence organization, had created an, an archive of what we would call today classified documents. So we have all the information to understand how they operated in other states this information might not have survived or somebody has not researched 
you know that you know that this has not gone yeah. through these documents yet so um there is some caution here in what i say what i found in the, the first chapters is sort of comparative comparative analysis of the different states European states intelligence services uh, using primarily secondary sources. So I, I mm-hmm. didn't have you know the time and the and the means to, to go to different uh, to a lot of different archives. Is that in most other European and indeed Italian Italian city states, um, what you have is uh, men sometimes women as well in power or individuals uh, seeking power, uh, creating their own, their, their own spy networks and, and somehow managing them themselves. There is no centralized intelligence organization as you have in Venice. In England, for example, in the 16th century, you do have Francis Walsingham as a spy master. And indeed, some scholars you know, claim that the, 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 the English are the, the first early modern state to have created a, a central intelligence organization. I didn't see that in my research at all. What you do have is Francis Walsingham, who finances a lot of his, you know, of his espionage activities himself. He does have some kind of budget uh, that is offered to him uh, by the monarch, but primarily he's a spy master running a, a spy network. Um, this is not necessarily orchestrated Orchestrated by um, by the you know the palace by the, the monarchy, much as the monarchy, especially Queen Elizabeth, does play a role. She she's interested, um, you know, and, and she wants to be as engaged as she can. Whereas in Venice, you do have the Council of Ten as the senior management committee of this organization, you know, housed in the Doge's palace, orchestrating all intelligence operations of the Venetians across Europe, the Near East, and even Northern Africa from the Doge's palace. The main, the only similarity I've found is Philip II Spain. My suspicion is that the Spanish, the Spaniards at the time already had the, the, their own, own um, central intelligence organization. But the reason why it didn't work as effectively is that Philip was so obsessed with controlling <laughs> every single action on his own. And we're talking about a man that was managing an empire in the geographic area of Europe, but also South America. So that was and impossible. The, and the Philippines. And the Philippines, absolutely, and going all the way you know, to the east. So that, that is, is really not possible for one person. Whereas the Venetians, the Council of Ten, were very good at delegating, but controlling what was happening through primarily correspondence. Mm-hmm. So let's... Um... Move back. I, I thought the book could have been completely about secrecy. It's just uh-huh. fascinating. And also about gossip. And secrecy and gossip are sort of a yin and yang, or they're opposite sides of the head. Um, yeah. You say that for the Republic of St. Mark, secrecy was one of the most potent virtues promulgated by the authorities. Now, yes. what's fascinating about this is that the secrecy takes you into what you also, one of your other questions about sort of popular history of Venice, because yes. secrecy is not just the emphasis of the, the ten. It's... Yes. Well, you, you go ahead. Describe that. How do they promulgate it? What what is secrecy? How do you define it? And how did the ten, yes. the ten promulgate it through Venice? Okay, so secrecy, um, and in in this case, uh, in the case of a central intelligence organization, official state secrecy, um, basically, you know, dealt with the protection of official state secrets, and that was sacred in early modern Venice. It was promulgated through a series of formal decrees and regulations. Um, and, and, and and this is how its sanctity was impressed primarily upon the nobility, uh, 
who, as I said, were the Venetian ruling class. So they had access to this secret information. But the, the Council of Ten um, issued a, a series of decrees and regulations dictating behavior uh, when it comes to, um, you know, official state secrecy. Um, I think the definition here is really, really important because um, most scholars of secrecy, um, um, scholars like the, you know, Cicela Bock or, you know, sociologist um, Georg Zimmel have defined secrecy in terms of concealment. So secrecy in terms of intentional concealment of information or as sort of Zimmel um, uh, defined it, consciously willed concealment. Uh, and why this is, and, and while this is really important, because ultimately you conceal information, if you try to understand secrets in the early modern period, uh, primarily considering all these methodological issues of finding secrets in archives, a secret in isolation is, is just not enough to give you enough historical insights. So what I did in, in the second chapter, which is dedicated to secrecy, um, is uh, basically I de developed my own definition based, it, it, it's actually, it's wrong, it's not my own, it's a definition based on sociological theorizations of secrecy of other scholars like Zimmel and, and Beryl Bellman. Uh, I adopted a definition of secrecy as a communicative event, that is the process of ongoing social interactions between individuals who, without the protection of secrecy, would not have been able to interact. So what I mean by this is that by erecting barriers between those who are privy to a secret and those who are not privy to a secret, um, secrecy functioned as a vehicle for knowledge exchange that could not take place without, you know, without secrecy. So it became a legitimate method of handling concealed knowledge and organizing in diffu its diffusion. Now, what's really important here is if you if you think of um, the, 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 the social hierarchy that was very rigid in the early modern period, in any state you take, what you do have is those at the highest echelons of, of society like the nobility like the Council of Ten, entrusting a secret to their secretaries who are subordinates because the secretaries are the ones who copy or transcribe um, secret documents or secret decisions or are those who encipher and decipher information. But also entrusting um, very lay individuals, those at the lowest level of society, with secrets when they actually um, recruit lay individuals to, for example, go to Constantinople and spy on on the political on the military preparations of the Turks, so you do have the highest echelons of society communicating, interacting with the lowest lower levels of society, and I think if you look at secrecy as a communicative event, as something that happens because there are these barriers, then we can understand how you know secrecy and intelligence in that period cannot only be seen as a top-down hierarchical process where you know a monarch gives some directions, but a bottom-up process of, you know, the lower levels of society being involved in espionage and intelligence uh, missions. So, so that's why I think it's just so important to, to yeah. look at secrecy, to the social interactions that secrecy creates, aside from, of course, that process of intentional concealment of information. Secrecy unites. 
Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. It creates two distinct groups, those in the know and those who uh -huh. are not in the know. And then there's extra elements there that if you're part of, you know, the group that is that, that you're in the know, then you, you, you know, you, you, you have this sense of achievement. You have this sense of belonging. So secrecy also creates group identity and potentially professional identity as well. Let me come up with a, a possible modern um, uh, example. Uh, yes. Surrounding Washington D.C., uh -huh. there are a great many people with classified, a cl uh, a secret classification. They yes. they have to apply to it just to be able to work at a defense contractor, uh -huh. relatively minor positions. Yet now they are different from the rest of us. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, we do not have a secret classification, let yes. alone a top secret classification, which is a, a whole new investigation and and makes you even more different and yet united uh, uh -huh. with every with the p other people who share it. You're of a secret yes. fraternity. And that's happening in Venice, too. Exactly. It's very, very similar. Um, it's very, very common in uh, in contemporary, um, in, you know, intelligence systems. Um, you know, any sociological analysis will show you that. But this is very common there as well. So you have about 100 secretaries, for example. And if we look at the first you know, six letters of the word secretary, that is a secret, right? You know, secretaries <laughs> yeah. by definitions have been protectors of secrets and have been perceived so up until the 18th century. You know, we don't have any memoirs left of these people. We don't have any, you know, written documentation of how they felt as part of a of a group, you know, that, that protected the secrets of the Venetian state. But surely, surely the fact that for centuries, except a couple of exceptions, nobody, uh, no secretary actually caused any, leaked any state secrets. Mm -hmm. They were all so faithful to their service for the number of years that they, you know, served, surely that shows that there is some kind of group of professional or institutional identity that they develop as part of the honor of being the, 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 the keepers of these official state secrets. So uh, the 10 were fanatical. You make very clear they were fanatical about secrecy. Yes. And about uh, about ciphering and the need to encipher correctly. Yeah. And people could get really big trouble for using the wrong cipher key at the oh, wrong yes. time. And, and, and God knows what would happen if they leaked something. And yet, yes. as we've said, Venice is a city of gossip. It is a small it place. Is. Everyone knows each other. And even if you're mm -hmm. out in Negro Ponte in Greece, yes. uh, you're related to like, God knows how many, you have so many aunts. It's like an enormous Italian family sprawled across the Eastern Mediterranean. Yes. So how does the secrecy live uh, in this culture of, of gossip? Um, and this is, because yes. cause Venice has, as you said, it's a famous culture of gossip, probably because they all live around squares and can all watch each other's business. Yes, um, yes. Uh, but, but how? And as you know, I mean, we, we see it even today, secrecy reinforces gossip, you know, because yes, you does, don't right. know, you know, that you start speculating. And of course, you know, there's all these fabrications. you actually have to talk to a reporter from the Washington Post because you want to show that you're a person who's <laughs> in, in the know. Exactly. So there's this big paradox in Venice that on the one hand, it is it is notorious for being this, uh, you know, I called it in the book Republic of Secrets, you know, playing a little bit on the Republic of Letters, but also is a Republic of Gossip. Uh, and of course, you know, it's so difficult to keep a secret, um, you know, at that particular point in time, primarily, again, going back to, you know, the, this morphology of early modern Venice, but also a, a really important point here is that compared to other European states, uh, Venice doesn't have a court. 
uh, where you know political information shared, um, you know, in, in a court can be somehow concealed because of the the boundaries of the court. You know, you got all these, you know, two three thousand um, male patricians going in the Doge's in and out the Doge's palace every day with their entourage, with their gondoliers. Of course, it's very difficult to maintain secrecy, and this is why I said, you know, I, I go back to you know studying just secrets in that particular point in time. It's just dry. Yes, you find something out. But, you know, what does this mean? Right. I, I, I remember I found a document. Um, it was a little piece of paper in, in a bigger sort of folder. And it just said, I killed him. Now we must never speak of this again. And I had no clue what that was. And, and much as it's arresting. Right. And alluring. What, yeah, what does this so, mean? So arresting. So arresting. Exactly. Yeah. But this goes back to, to me. The fascinating element is aside from the fact that the, the Venetians um, came up um, with, um, you know, with all these, especially the Council of Ten, with all these decrees and regulations on protecting official state secrecy. We leave that aside because, as, you know, that that is normal for any state in that period. Um, mm-hmm. It's the fact of, you know, how they managed to engage the lower echelons of, of the society, what we call we're called the Popolani, which is about 90% of the population, who, by the way, do not have access to political participation, so they're not allowed to vote, right? How they managed to engage um, a, a great number of these individuals in these intelligence pursuits. They, they, they managed to instill some kind of sense of duty that I need to protect state secrets. Um, and if I hear somebody leaking, a state secret, I need to report it. That's really interesting how they managed to do that. And to me, again, it's that social interaction. Um, and the final thing, of course, because we are talking about Venetians who are, you know, primarily businessmen. Um, of course, there is a quid pro pro quo element there that for for several of them uh, the way to get them to engage in protecting secrecy or sharing secrets that are important, uh, they would offer them something in return, and that's also really important. So mm-hmm. there is secrecy and gossip are related mm-hmm. to this, perhaps to this culture of denunciation. I, I began mm-hmm. the, the this uh, conversation with uh, quoting from one of these denunciations. Uh, could you? What is this? What what is this practice of denunciation, which seems so Stalinist? And how yes. does that fit into to Venice? So as part of this. Um, secrecy culture that the Venetians have instilled, as I said, in all echelons of society, what they eventually do is they invite ordinary citizens um, to, if they are privy to any information that is relevant um, to the security of the Venetian state. So, for example, they think that somebody is leaking important information to the Spanish ambassador in Venice and so on and so forth. They invite these individuals to, to denounce you know, that particular person that's causing harm to the Venetian Republic in the form of um, anonymous letters that initially they were allowed to um, to leave in any prominent place like the, 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 you know, the staircase of a particular state official or outside the Doge's palace and so on and so forth. But eventually the whole process of denunciation becomes so important that they, st- they start installing specific post boxes around Venice and around the Veneto area, so the cities surrounding Venice, where people are invited to leave these denunciations. 
And what happens is the three heads of the Council of Ten, so every month, three members of the Council of Ten uh, take turns at becoming what we call the heads of the Ten. Um, and basically their job is to go through all these denunciations and try to understand, you know, which ones are, you know, completely worthless or fabrication and which ones are important and they need to sort of um, action and, and find out more information about. And they become so popular that eventually, you know, these post boxes, they start um, decorating as lion's mouths or masks so that you know they, they, they become a little bit more artistic um, and eventually because everyone wants to denounce anyone and they're different type of boxes depending on the issue so there's not only issue of states issues of state security well state security is an umbrella term there are issues of public health which also you know can endanger the security of the state there's you know several issues that people can denounce but eventually because everyone wants to denounce anyone for any reason really um, then they start. They they they, they tend, you know, promulgate this um, notion that you can be anonymous, but your denunciation need to be signed by three individuals. You know, so mm. at least there are some kind of witness um, witnesses, and this is important in the sense that most people will denounce somebody because they expect something back from the authorities. Again, we're talking about you know uh, a business empire. You know, the the bit the the business DNA of the Venetian is there, um, so that we need to be able to find you basically to offer you a reward if you give us some information that is really really important. And a lot of these documents have actually survived. There is a book that's written in Italian about them. Um, mm. And again, it, it is part of that culture of secrecy that the moment you offer these secrets to the authorities, you have this sense of duty. You have this sense that you have done something for the state. Um, of course, you know, they could you know, could be done out of spite. They could be done out of, you know, you know, wanting to get something back. There's several reasons why they're done. But again, it's the authorities involving every single member of the Venetian society, primarily Primarily those who do not have access to political participation, but they yeah, are a, invited. It, it, yeah, you yeah. know, to, it's to, their to, act to, of political. It's their act of political participation. It's it's what would be another. It's it's related in many ways to sort of a petition. Yes, um, absolutely. But, yeah, but, but much more gossipy. Uh, much more um, getting something, uh, but yeah, it's yeah. related to petition, but a little bit less uh, high-minded, perhaps. Um, yes, you. Now, I want to quickly consider a couple of different technologies uh, that yes. we might not think of as technologies. And one of them is correspondence. Yes. Uh, how is correspondence a, a technology, which in many ways, it seems to me that the Venetians uh, imagined what correspondence was before other cultures in Europe were able to do so. Um, so what was correspondence and how did Venice use it? I really like the fact that you actually called it a, a technology because um, I think there is yes. there's a great merit to the use of this word. So correspondence, of course, at that point in time, we're talking about the 16th century, was the main means of long-distance communication, okay? So, hence, it was mighty important. Um, within the realm of state security and intelligence organization and, of course, espionage missions, um, the, this extra layer of secrecy that accompanied correspondence um, it rendered it even more pivotal, okay? Um, so it is a technology of communication. So it had to be tightly uh, controlled uh, as through, through it sensitive information was transmitted. And in most cases, um, that information was encrypted as well. So there's, uh, you know, um, and cryptography plays a role there. But as a claim in the book, um, within the realm of Venice's intelligence organization, correspondence was used 
Firstly, to communicate orders and directives to subordinates. Okay, so so if I am the manager and I need to order somebody who who is in Crete, you know, I need to communicate my order through correspondence. There, there's there's no other you know viable way. And secondly, it was used to enable subordinates to report, or as I said, give account on their actions as a consequence of these directives. So from this perspective, correspondence was not only a tool of communication but a tool of management that enabled the authorities to communicate their requests and to seek written reports on the way in which these requests were actioned. And and I think this is an extremely important managerial innovation of that particular point in time that, if you ask me, it has misleadingly been attributed to the the post-industrial era. So correspondence Mm -hmm. is not just a means of communication. It is a tool of management. And it is a, 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 a means of technology, as you call it, which is very difficult to perceive because if we think of technology, we think of emails or we think of, uh, you know, uh, webcams or, you know, cyber, you know, uh, sort of digital communication. So it was very, very important um, in order to be able to disseminate all these um, legally standing degrees and orders and, and to get people to action what was needed to be actioned. Yes, and the Venetians uh, saw correspondence as a whole, um, as a whole system mm-hmm. in ways that uh, other European, well, monarchs and their counselors seemed to see them as individual sort of um, decree. Well, for example, um, Venice mm-hmm. understood in a, in a way so incredibly that they could gain control of the entire flow of information from the Ottoman Empire. They could, uh-huh. yes. they could gain access to the entire stream. It's very much like uh, someone sitting down and tapping the fiber optic line between the UK and the, yes. and the North America. Um, it's just absolutely incredible. But no one else seemed to think it was important. Um, yes, they, and- they, they didn't see it as a, a holistically. They didn't see what was they saw it as little individual pieces. Yes, uh, and I, I, I think that's that's really important. And also, of course, one of the reasons for that is that the Venetians did is is basically who owned the postal routes and who controlled yes. the postal routes. And the Venetians were in utter control of the postal route between the East or the Ottoman Empire and the West, because most communication leaving the Ottoman Empire would pass from Venice and then would be transmitted to the rest of Europe. So, of course, the Venetians would just open letters, read them, and then seal them back and, and send them, you know, wherever they had to be sent. Um, and they- and yes. that gets to the bureaucratic apparatus because they must have had a lot of people doing that. Yes, there, there, uh, there was at least a hundred secretaries in the Doge's palace um, working on on all these um, on all these issues. Yes. Yeah. So, and of course, related to this is cryptography. Now we uh-huh. don't have time to get into this. You have a whole chapter. Yes. I thought to myself, did Yana have to learn Venetian cryptography? Did you <laughs> no. actually learn? No, no, I didn't. Much as I, I think it's not very difficult to decipher if you have uh, the mathematical background all the time. And I'm afraid I, I, I didn't have the time to deal with it. But the Venetian <laughs> system was so I do. I, I'm, I'm quite good at math. So I'm sure it would yeah. have been quite easy to decipher some of those. But there was just no time uh, and there was and no the, need. You have the keys there too, right? Exactly. Well, you do have the keys, and some of them you cannot access anymore. They're not available to your general scholar. They're just saved because apparently they're very sensitive documents. Um, but what you do have, it was again, this is where the Venetian secret archive, which was part of the Venetian intelligence organization, is so important because the secretaries that uh, were transcribing all these letters that the tens was uh, the Council of Ten was sending to their subordinates, or they were transcribing all the replies or letters from different. Um, 
uh, monarchs and ambassadors and so on and so forth that they were in cipher, they would decipher them themselves. So what has okay. been has survived is the original cipher and then the deciphered letter. So it was very easy for me. And it was the same when I looked at documents in Spanish archives and in archives in Rome. You have the original cipher and you have the deciphered text. So it was extremely easy for me to actually just read the deciphered text. So I didn't, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not a cryptography whiz. <laughs> So the, the, the but they 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 seek advances in cryptography. Um, is mm -hmm. am I right in remembering that they awarded people who came up with new and better ciphers? They did, uh, yes. And then there's and they and then amazingly they required responsible officers to sit for an exam on yes. encipherment. It's so yes. again so sophisticated. Um, it is. A there's obviously a training course, and then you sit for an exam. Um, you know. And this is why, I mean, I made, I make the claim in the book, but I made that claim in, a, in an article published a bit earlier that the Venetians did not actually, did not just institutionalize cryptography because they created a, a, a properly um, state-funded department of professional cryptography within the Doge's palace. So they were managing their official cryptographers from within, and they made part of the Venetian civil service, if we can use this phrase. But they they actually professionalized it because compared to other secretaries that still had to go through certain hoops in order to reach higher levels of, you know, in order to get their promotion, um, Venetian cryptographers had to sit an initial exam. And every few years, they had to receive exams to demonstrate that I do, you know, I, that they were they were well versed with the advancements of cryptology that were quite rapid at the time. Of course, for us today, they were quite primitive, but at the time were, were quite rapid. So if you juxtapose that, you know, the, the professional cryptologists and most of these individuals, very famous careerists as well, so we know it, they created their own training module, manuals, they were training and mentoring uh, younger recruits. If you juxtapose that professionalization of the chifristas, they call the cipher secretary, with the complete lack of professionalization of a, of a spy, we, there is no mm -hmm. professional spy in that period. There is no training for them. There is no exam. There's nothing, there's no career development prospect whatsoever. And I think it's very, very important, um, you know, to understand the differences between different, you know, professions or occupations in the 16th century. Yeah, well, let's, um, before we, as we wind up, we should talk briefly about what people think of uh, in espionage, which is the spy. Um, mm -hmm. You have an, a fantastic, uh, there's a fantastic picture in uh -huh. your book of a, a carving by Pianta yes. in the Scuola Grande of uh, of the spy. So could you describe, I mean, there's nothing I like better on a podcast than describing a work of art, uh, visual okay. art. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it really, it's, it's audio gold. Uh, so mm -hmm. what, do, what does it look like? What does it represent? So it is, um, it, it, it's a sculpture, it's a wooden sculpture by um, an artist called Francesco Pianta. Um, it's a 17th century um, sculpture, which is most probably one of the earliest, if not the earliest, artistic re representation of a spy we've got. Um, it represents, if you look at it, it's not, it's not very big, but it's, it's, quite, it, it, it's quite substantial in size. It represents a nobleman, um, I would say potentially an ambassador, uh, yeah. who acted as an informer or a spy because ambassadors, as part of their responsibilities, they had to um, uh, convey important information. 
in a very elegant attire, so you can tell that's that's probably a nobleman, uh, enveloped in a cloak and a hat mm -hmm. that conceal his face, because clearly a spy should not be seen as a spy, uh, and equipped with a lantern, which helps illuminate his mission, but also wearing winged boots that signify Mercury's speed and diligence as the, you know, the emissary of the gods. I should um, say these are... For those uh, we've talked about shoes in the podcast before, and these are very elegant boots, uh, high heeled. Yes, uh, and, and, but they look—they look, do look good. I mean, that's if you look they at do. Ferragamo, uh, Ferragamo boots. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I mean that's part of that part of the uh, the cloak, the which is has a lot of material in it, which I guess indicates it's um, the, the elegance and wealth of the man who wears it. Absolutely, um, and all you can—it's all you can see between the brim of his hat. And the cloak are his eyes and lots of yes. luxuriant hair. Yes. Um, but so that a lantern, the boots, and what what else? There's a, is it, is there, and there is a Latin thing? inscription around his waist that basically describes the the, the, the the spy as gentle as a lamb, but cunning as a fox, as a fox as he tries to infiltrate foreign courts, um, which is basically the contemporaneous definition of a spy, you know, especially, you know, the ambassador spy as well. Um, you know, I'm showing, I mean, this particular sculpture was actually um, inspired by one of the earliest pictorial depictions of a spy, Publishing a book entitled Iconologia, which is a, a highly influential 16th century emblem book by the mm -hmm. Perugian iconographer Cesare Ripa, um, which is a, a more humble type of spy. If you look at the the, the, the image is in the book, um, who wears this cloak. And again, we cannot see his face and there's the hat and there's the dog that helps him sort of sniff around for information. Um, and if you look at the eyes and ears on the attire, um, there is a speculation that this, these um, eyes and ears inform the, 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 the dress of Queen Elizabeth I in the rainbow portrait, one now, of the, I I think it's the last in, portrait. In, Reba, in Ripa's um, symbol, his, his sort of uh, draw this engraving, um, uh -huh. the, the spy is wearing a cloak and sort of designs sewn upon, represent on the cloak are ears and eyes, and I think a yes. scroll. But I might be wrong about that. But so there is there is a strange multi-eared, multi-eyed design uh, on mm -hmm. this cloak. Um, and as you say, the rainbow portrait, which is Hatfield House, mm, she's exactly. also the, the queen is covered with eyes, mm. which is that 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 I think was given to Walls. Was that given to? No, it wasn't given to Walsingham. It's too late. But it's given yeah. to. It's um, but it, it is a representation of her as the all-seeing monarch. Exactly, and all hearing as well, because there's ears as, as well. There so are it, ears it, on it, it as well. Exactly. So I can hear everything. I can see everything. And I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of scholars, because of that portrait, um, they've made the claim that, you know, that the, 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 the English created this first, you know, centrally organized intelligence service um, under the control of Queen Elizabeth. But so far, um, I, I have not you know, seeing that, you know, intense centralization that you see in Venice. Admittedly, no. this is not a, a, a place uh, and an era that I've studied, you know, for England. Well, I, I, I hope, um, I, I don't know if this is your discovery, but this seems to be like a little uh, a nice paper in art history trying to um, sort of relativize the rainbow portrait by point, yeah. pointing out the pre previous Italian examples. Um, so I, I love this, this emphasis on the spy as... as as having the eyes and ears, but also this gets back to secrecy. 
ties it very neatly back to secrecy yes. and ties back to what people think um, spies do. Um, exactly. We um, don't have time to do uh -huh. uh, to talk about things like the extraordinary measures. Was that their phrase? Yes. Or <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a phrase I use. It was. It was. I think the most challenging um, aspect of, especially that chapter, is how do I come up with a term that yeah. encompasses all the different activities that the, the you know the Venetians did to complement their espionage mission. And I have to yes. say that was uh, primarily um, my dear husband, who is also an intelligence historian, um, gave me this this uh, suggestion. I thought it worked as well as it could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And these are all. This is a chapter. This is devoted to uh, the covert actions assassination yes. so on that the republic yes. undertook so we won't we won't um we don't have time for that but i want to uh -huh. i want to start wrapping this up we're going way over yes. um how did you get interested in this topic and um, that was a bit of a coincidence um it's sort of a happy happenstance i would say um so i as, as i was talking to you briefly before we started this podcast um after i finished my phd uh, which was on the venetian shipbuilding communities uh sort of socioeconomic history of the shipbuilders and sailors of early modern venice um i i said it i left it aside i decided i needed a break from academia and um I had, however, uh, a set of documents that I hadn't used, which was uh, shipbuilders and sailors traveling to primarily the areas of, of modern Greece um, to basically repair ships, you know, during um, the Ottoman-Venetian Wars. And they would come back and they would go to the Doge's Palace and they would report some gruesome mm. things they had actually witnessed about Venetian citizens or residents and how they were being tortured tortured by the Ottomans. Um, and I thought, I, know, I didn't use that material for my PhD, but I thought, well, that's strange. What, why are they doing that? It's, it's somehow, you know, it's like they're spying, but they're not actually spying. Have they been asked to do that? Um, mm. So eventually I, I started discussing this when I started um, going out with my then boyfriend, current husband, who is, as I said, an intelligence historian historian and I said well you got you know I've got all this material but I don't know what it is um so um two weeks down the line uh, Chris my husband um is, is invited at the intelligence seminar at Cambridge University and he was speaking with Professor Christopher Andrew who's one of the leading authorities of intelligence yeah. studies who said to him Chris I am convinced that early modern Venice is is sort of this pinnacle of central intelligence organization but i have i have no clue how that is because i don't speak italian and there's not much written about it so chris said to him oh my my girlfriend is a specialist in this <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't at all so christopher andrew invites me to give a talk to this sort of closed door conference of a few scholars as a specialist so i had four months to start researching this <laughs> Um, just to prepare for a 20-minute talk. And in that process, I absolutely fell in love with the topic and realized, yes, there's a lot missing here. Um, mm. So eventually I managed to go to Venice for a month and start researching the archives of the Council of Ten. And it just got absolutely mesmerized with what with what I was finding. And that's how it all started. So it was a, a sort of a, a coincidence or enforced coincidence initiated by my husband. <laughs> so what, um, what, so most of your archives that you consulted are in Venice, oh. which is convenient. I would say the overwhelming majority, yes. 
Yeah, yeah. You, so you haven't had to track things down to to Spain or to to uh, had, even in London. Yes, you did. Yeah. I, I did. Yes, because um, what you do have in Venice is uh, the archive of the, or the secret archive, as they call it, of the Council of Ten, which is primarily the information I wanted to look at, um, and that's a lot of material that unfortunately you cannot access digitally, so you need to be there. But because I wanted to understand how the Venetian Secret Service was perceived by other rival states. Um, and also wanted to find some, you know, when the Venetians were sending letters to Rome or to Spain or to the Ottoman Empire, some of the copies were in Venice, but some others were not. Um, mm -hmm. So I spent quite a lot of time at what was called the Vatican Secret Archive, uh, which yeah. is a very alluring name, but unfortunately they've just been renamed as Vatican Ap Apostolic Archives, uh, which is yeah. not as fascinating, um, which is where you have got the, com the communication between the, 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 the ambassador of, of the pontiff in Venice uh, and, and sort of that communication there. And I also went to the archives, um, the, the, the imperial uh, Spanish imperial archives in Simancas in, in Spain, just mm -hmm. to look at the communication between the Spanish ambassador and the Venetian authorities. I did some research at the National Archives in London, um, and so there was some information there. So these are the the, the the main the main archives I used. But I would say the overwhelming majority of the material was um, stored in in the Venetian State Archives. Did um, when they're writing when they're deciphering a document, what do, what do they write in? I mean, what 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 do they transcribe it into? Uh, it, 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 well, in Venice and Italy, it's all Italian, of course. Uh, okay. but I, I was curious if it was Latin. Um, and, but uh, they some of it, yes. Okay. Very little for the 16th century, but there were some Latin documents, um, especially some very official documentation might be Latin. I would say 95% is in Italian. And indeed, the Venetian ambassador, so the Spanish ambassador who writes back to Philip II, some of the letters are in Spanish. Um, hmm. So the transcription is in Spanish, but some of them are written in Italian. So the transcription is in Italian. So all these, mm -hmm. cipher, all these secretaries needed to be fluent in, in, in at least two or three languages, actually, to be able to encipher and decipher effectively. And is, are they writing in Venetian dialect or are they writing in straight up sort of Dante, uh, Dante Tuscan, semi-Tuscan Italian? Uh, official correspondence, so for example, secretaries, governors, ambassadors, they write in, in you know, standard Italian. Stand, but yeah. Italian, Italian language is not necessarily standardized in that period, no, but it's not the not Venetian dialect. <laughs> Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the lower levels of society, so denunciations uh, yeah. of, you know, lower um, level individuals who sometimes had to employ a scribe to write for them if they could not write. Uh, there's a lot of the Venetian dialect there. Yes. That must be fantastic. Which is so quite you're... interesting and exciting oh, to read. A, yes. It's a fantastic dialect. Um, so yes. it's, yeah. Um, so what, what do, what languages do you, did you have to have to be able to do this project? So I am fluent in Italian, so that's that's not an issue. I read Spanish, I would say I'm 100% fluent in reading Spanish. I can speak it, but it's not a language <laughs> yeah. I practice very much. Right. So when I start speaking Spanish, Italian will come out. Um, yes, exactly. And I also yeah. had to access some uh, French and German literature, um, which I, I do have basic French and German and Latin, but I did need the, the help of dictionaries with those. But the primary mm -hmm. Italian and Spanish, I had absolutely no problem reading very, mm -hmm. very easily. 
So uh, let's um, back up and look at the wider view of this. We began um, near the beginning talking about proto-modern organizations. Um, yes. So how, how should we think about the emergence of, of proto-modern organizations in, in the pre-industrial world, uh, like the Venetian Intelligence Service? Yes. Like, I think your next book will go back to the, the ground of your dissertation about the Arsenale, the, oh. ship, the sailors and, and shipyard workers of, of Venice. Why is it important to think about them and what might we learn from them? I think, again, as, as a historian working in the business school and tried to convince, not always successfully, uh, colleagues to, to understand organizations prior to the, the, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, the first thing is that organization, we need to consider organization not only as a bounded entity, entity and that's very important, but also as a process, a process of, of becoming. Um, so I think... I think it's time for us historians to enrich uh, the disciplines of history, but also the disciplines of management and organization studies with plausible accounts of organizational life in the very distance, distant past. Um, hmm. This is not only because if, you th if we think of them that way and if we use a little bit of interdisciplinarity there, we can come up with fresh questions uh, and by extension, you know, fresh interpretations of, you know, the early modern period. Um, but because such a stance can help us reconsider that academic orthodoxy, that contemporary organizations represent a sense of normality that it did not exist in the distance past because we didn't have the technological advancements of today or, you know, what has been called um, rationality. Um, I think it's, it's really, really important to start analyzing all these entities and these processes, um, you know, because... If if we are to if, if we think that you know organizations are a contemporary phenomenon independent from the past, I think what we do is we end up inadvertently strip uh, organizations of their claim to practical durability in the future, um, and that is because you know if you have a continuum of past, present, and future, I don't think any entity can claim independence of one end of the spectrum while maintaining its link to the other. I mean, surely historical location in time requires uh, both, you know, their antecedents to, to everything. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's important to reconsider what we mean by modernity. You know, what is modern? What constitutes something that is modern? You know, what follows modern? What precedes modern? I think these are all big questions that, of course, I, I, cannot, um, I, I, I cannot answer myself. Uh, but ultimately, you know, to me, the lesson here is there is a lot of material, really rich material on organizational processes and managerial processes having developed in the pre-industrial era uh, that we haven't explored because the terminology was not there, but the essence was there. Uh, and, and if we look at them, they give us the opportunity for fresh interpretations of our past. And that's really important. My guest today has been Ioana Jordano. She is the author of Venice's Secret Service, Organizing Intelligence in the Renaissance. Ioana, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Oh, thank you very much for, uh, for the honor of being part of your podcast. Thank you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.